Welcome to the Table Read Podcast. Okay, we're ready. These episodes are audio recordings of live Zoom table reads of original screenplays and pilot episodes by a talented collection of writers, actors, and directors. Places, everybody. And hosted by Northern Unicorn Films. Roll camera. Rolling. Action. Hi, I'm M.E. Ellington, co-writer of Tomorrow's Flight. Myself and Stephen Stiefel would like to welcome you to the table read. We hope you enjoy. So thank you everyone who's come along to watch and thank you to all the wonderful actors uh, that's taking part and giving their time and a special thanks to Georgia who's really pulled this together um, as director and done a, a wonderful job and that extends to uh, Janice um, as well who once again has worked tirelessly to get us to uh, to this point today so thank you all and i'm going to start off by introducing our cast first up thomas moore he writes he's available at thomas moore the third iii at yahoo.com stephen stifel is the author of four published nonfiction books including making rumors the story of a turbulent turbulent year in 1976 Ken Kellett spent producing Fleetwood Mac's iconic album. Stephen earned advanced degrees from USC and University of Arizona. Currently, he lives in Los Angeles, and he is the other writer of this script, along with Martin Ellington. Kartik is a trained actor, a passionate storyteller, and a budding voice artist. He's keen on exploring realistic narratives on stage, screen, and select things in between. He can be reached at, at Kartik Bargav on Twitter. Rebecca Guerra is a Cuban-American screenwriter and actress. Her background includes stage and television performances in both English and Spanish. She's a graduate of Florida State University and resides in Central Florida. You can reach her at RebeccaGuerra at Outlook.com. David Keogh is an English-Irish award-winning screenwriter and actor from London, UK. Recently, he was one of the leads in the movie Destination Dewsbury. He toured England with T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral and has just been cast in his first musical as Oscar Wilde's long-suffering friend and once lover, Robbie Ross, even though he can't sing. You can reach him at davidjkeogh.co.uk. Art Shreen Tawari is an award-winning filmmaker, screenwriter, actor, and a human person, definitely not an alien. You can learn more about him at artshreen.com and follow him on social media at Artrian. You can also listen to him talk about storytelling, entertainment, culture, politics, representation, etc. on Art Approved, a podcast by My New York Eye. Phil Davies has written for children's TV series such as Sesame Street spin-off, Furchester Hotel, and CB series, Go Jetters and Love Monster. He's also a funeral celebrant 
and avid reader of comic books and player of board games. His Twitter handle is PhilDWriter and is in the chat box below. Caroline Carrigan is an actor and screenwriter based in Los Angeles. She has won the Austin Screenwriting Competition for Best Comedy Screenplay and is very happy to get a chance to work with Steve Stifle as an actor again after about 20 years. You can reach her at carcar, C-A-R-C-A-R, at AOL.com. David Carter cooks, smiles, and gardens, but he's best known for overprojecting. Meet David Carter on IG and Twitter at Meet David Carter and catch the fun of living in Carter's tiny homestead via YouTube. And that's Ti Carter's tiny homestead on YouTube. Isabel Marr is an actor and an, in an intimacy coordinator. Obviously, I'm thrown by intimacy. Find her at isabelmar.com. And with that, we're going to start. Tomorrow's Flight by Emmy Ellington and Stephen Stifle. Tease. Interior, commercial airplane, economy aisle seat, night. Sarah, a slim mid-30s brunette, sleeps awkwardly in her aisle seat. Still asleep, she adjusts her blanket. A mask covers her eyes and she holds a spiral notebook in one hand. The plane shudders as if from light turbulence. Sarah moves in her seat, not fully awakening. The notebook falls from her hand, landing on her lap before spilling onto the floor. Interior, commercial airplane, aisle following. Lindsay, early 40s, Japanese-American flight attendant, rushes down the aisle from the cockpit. The plane shudders more violently. Lindsay grasps hold of the back of a seat on a nearly empty aircraft. Everyone. Everyone, seatbelts on and tight. Lindsay hurries past Sarah's seat, heading to the back of the plane. Interior, commercial airplane, Sarah's seat following, a more violent shudder. Sarah comes fully awake and removes her mask. She looks to her seat companion, William, a man about her age, who also looks scared. Oxygen masks drop and luggage falls out of the overhead bins. What was that? I don't know. Other passengers mumble in fear. Everyone on the red-eye flight is now awake. Some begin to panic. Sarah POV, William raises his window blind. A blinding light flashes outside the plane. The screen itself seems to tremble as all goes white in a mechanical roar that almost sounds like a creature. Then everything goes quiet and dark. Interior, orb, morning. Light comes up a bit until the inside of an orb with an arc, similar to that of the plane's fuselage comes into view, lit from the other side. The camera strikes out at the wall of the orb, tracking it. The camera strikes at the orb again. A piece falls away, revealing blue sky. Another strike at the orb until it crumbles and a new world, verdant and green, reveals itself. Exterior, orb, following. A pathetic creature emerges from the orb. The emerging being is the size of a large chicken and it's covered in down. Yet, it also looks like a lizard with its large jaw. The newborn creature opens its maw and makes a noise, something between a squawk and a roar. Creature POV. The world is strange and verdant with vast grasslands. Thin forests of unusual trees are edged by hills and cliffs. Everything seems young and new. Back on Creature. The sound is returned by a gentle roar that sounds akin to the noise the plane made. The newborn chickenish 
thing trembles. An extremely large nostril of another creature, not fully visible, dips into frame. The newborn, just emerged from its egg, reaches with its tiny arms toward the other being's enormous muzzle. Opening credits begin. Act One. Exterior. Central Nevada Desert Afternoon. Impose on screen. Central Nevada, July 16th. The camera pans across the scorching desert landscape, revealing a dig site with individual tents, young paleontologists digging, and a large central communal tent. Andrea comes into frame. She's Hispanic, late 20s. She wears baggy clothes and a plaid shirt that looks so uncomfortable in the heat that they must be a defense mechanism. Exterior, Central Nevada Desert, dig site, medium shot. Andrea works to remove a bone from the ground. I need a break. Andrea sits down her small trowel. Exterior, Central Nevada Desert, shaded area near dig site. In a patch of nearby shade, Andrea takes a drink from her canteen. Then she notices something visible nearby in the recently disturbed earth. Insert, what looks like a partial human skull with the forehead and a nostril revealed. Exterior, Central Nevada Desert, near main dig site. Andrea crosses to the unusual formation. She bends down and uses her trusty old brush to sweep away loose dirt. Insert, the full skeletal fossilized face of a woman comes into view. Back to scene. Andrea takes a deep breath and she reaches for her walkie-talkie, activating it. Dr. Lady, are you there? Yes, Andrea, what is it? I found the skull of a woman. Where? She's buried in the strata that we're You mean she's buried next to it? No, she's within it, but several yards away. And she's fossilized. I'll be there in a minute. Exterior, near main dig, moments later. Dr. Levy, Susan, is a petite Caucasian academic in her 60s, who seems a bit self-effacing, using that to her advantage. She approaches Andrea, busy sweeping away more dirt. He is. Susan studies the find. As the two women look at the skull, Dr. Iverson, Craig, trails behind. He's early 30s, handsome, arrogant, and a bit shifty. Andrea notices him. Mm. Craig's following you, like a cat, waiting to pounce. Susan turns toward Craig. What do you make of this, Dr. Iverson? Craig approaches and looks at the fossilized woman that Andrea has partially excavated. It's strange. She's a contemporary woman. Well, she's fossilized, which makes her in conclusion impossible. Andrea turns to her boss, Susan, ignoring Craig, who moves so that his shadow doesn't shield Andrea from the sun. Before Andrea can speak, Susan, Susan grips her arm to calm her. I'd say you're both partially correct. This appears to be a modern woman buried in ancient earth, and she appears to be fossilized. And of course, this is impossible based on what we know. Well, what do we do about that? We have to consider it. Back to before conclusions, always. I only stated facts and I didn't draw any conclusions other than to say it was strange. 
you're ABD, right? I mean, you've finished your coursework, but your written work has yet to be approved before you get your PhD. Susan grips Andrea's arm tightly again. I'm Andrea's committee chair. Yes, I read that in my briefing. Susan stands, drawing herself to full height, such that it is, to cordially confront Craig. You received a briefing? Uh, 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 I, I, was, I was given a rundown on all the personnel because um, I'm, I'm, I'm from different university. Odd that they didn't provide that to us since you come from a different university as well. Craig backs down, walking away. Andrea stands as he does. I really don't like that cabrón. Others say the same, but it's important that we try not to isolate him. I'm not sure that he's here for the same reasons we are. Andrea contemplates this and turns her attention back to the remains still mostly buried in the ground. What do we do with her? Let's start a new dig. We'll call this site B. Claire and Blake can help you. Susan and Andrea hear a hubbub coming from a few hundred yards away. Susan's walkie-talkie crackles to life. Dr. Levy, you better get over here. We just found something really unusual. Susan and Andrea look at the other. Exterior, dig site. Moments later, Susan and Andrea arrive at a fuss. Claire is an early 20s peculiar beauty with a tattoo across her clavicles that reads, my future is in the past. Blake, her affable boyfriend, is a couple years older and a bit pudgy. Claire and Blake are bent over something. When they hear Susan and Andrea approach, they turn their attention away from what they found, looking up at Susan and Andrea. Check this out. Insert. In the ground is the large scorched remains of an airplane's tail. It's all in one large piece, but devoid of any airline markings. Exterior. Parking lot outside the NTSB head office, Washington, D.C., morning. Impose on screen. National Transportation Safety Board, Washington, D.C., July 18th. Bruce Auckland, a large, surly Caucasian man in his early 60s with an unkempt beard, parks his beaten-up accord in his parking space. A sign on the wall reads, Reserved Parking, Bruce Ackland, Senior Air Crash Investigator. Bruce exits the vehicle, stretches uncomfortably, and looks up at the large, faceless building. He tries to negotiate his briefcase, a large round ream of paperwork, and his car keys. He drops his large porcelain coffee mug. It shatters against the asphalt, spilling coffee on his rumpled khaki pants. Interior, NTSB offices. Bruce's office, moments later. Bruce, sit, Bruce sits at his desk in his drab, cluttered office with dirty, broken blinds covering the window. He takes a swig of office coffee from a paper cup and looks at it with distaste. Samir Glaver, second-generation Indian-American and about 30, enters Bruce's office. Samir holds the folder. Hi, boss. Uh, glad you made it back. Bruce pushes a finger under his glasses, nipping the bridge of his nose to wake himself fully. He sighs. Oh, one day I won't. And it'll be up to you to figure out how I died. Samir sits in a chair on the opposite side of the desk. Bruce ignores him, tapping furiously at the keys on his ancient PC. I'm surprised they let you keep using that old thing. This old thing works fine. 
Just because something's old doesn't mean it needs to be replaced. Samir shifts in his seat. Despite Bruce's tone, Bruce and Samir are on good terms. Well, I had a really interesting call yesterday. <sighs> Try to surprise me, will you? I can do that. <laughs> there isn't a disaster I haven't encountered before. Well, I wanted you to be the first to hear. Oh, Jesus Christ. I hope you didn't knock up your girlfriend. My girlfriend broke up with me a couple months ago. I told you that. Did you? <laughs> Doesn't mean she's not pregnant. <laughs> anyway, a team of paleontologists working in central Nevada uncovered what seems to be a large tail section from a commercial airliner. And it doesn't correspond to any missing flight, and it has no identifying markings. Okay, that's a good one. I've got to admit, did Westwood put you up to this? He's always trying to do stuff. No, it's yeah. real. I, I swear. They were uncovering it while they were digging up dinosaur fossils exposed during a recent flood. It's in the same ancient earth. Well, how is that Bruce possible? Beard. How, how can there be a section of an airliner in the same type of earth as a dinosaur? I don't know, boss, but they say there is, and paleontologists know about these things. They sent photos. Samir tosses a couple printed photos from his folder onto Bruce's desk. Bruce ignores them. Uh, what does it mean that a piece of metal is close to these old bones? <laughs> Fossil. Fossils, boss. Not bones. Bruce glares at Samir, sucks in air, and exhales. <sighs> anyway, the paleontologist I spoke to is convinced that it's the same strata of Earth. I told her we'd come check it out. Why both of us? Well, because I don't have the experience to identify a piece of aircraft without identifying marks. So if you're of no value, why do you need to come along? Well, because you're going to hate every minute of it, and you'll need me to run interference with the paleontologists. And I need to keep you away from them when you're in one of your moods. Central Nevada. Isn't it miserable there this time of year? You'll hardly notice. Why? <laughs> you're miserable everywhere you go. <laughs> Bruce stifles a laugh. He picks up a photo. Insert. The photo shows an airplane tail still half buried in the Cretaceous earth. Bruce takes a distasteful swig of coffee. Oh, okay. I'll speak to Westwood. You make the arrangements. Oh, get the fuck out of my office! Bruce watches Samir leave. Fucking first day back. Jesus. Interior. Portland. Upscale apartment. Open kitchen. Night. Pose on screen, Portland, Oregon, August 23rd. The, uh, the apartment is neat, contemporary, and masculine. William, mid-30s, tall and attractive with a day's beard growth, checks his smartwatch. Come on, where are you? William empties the last of his coffee into a travel mug. Then he tops it off with a couple shots of vodka from a half-empty bottle. He puts the empty pot into the dishwasher and turns it on. William's watch beeps. He looks out the kitchen window. Then he takes a swig from the vodka bottle and reaches for his briefcase. Exterior, Portland Airport, a half hour later. A rideshare Prius pulls up at American Cruise Airlines. The full moon is enormous in the background. Interior, Prius, Portland Airport. William hands the Prius driver a 20. Sorry, sir, can't take the cash. You have to tip me on the app. Will do, um, thanks. Exterior, airport, following. William heads toward the airport entrance. 
A dusty Toyota Land Cruiser with a yellow paint scratch along its rear door hits the Prius as it attempts to pull away from the curb. William hears the crash and turns. Two men and two women exit the Land Cruiser. An older woman struggles to get out through the bashed door. Hey, get back here! The four people rush past William, headed into the airport. Interior, airport coffee shop near TSA, following. Dalton, 17 years old, thin for his age, but nicely dressed, sits with his mom and dad. Dalton's helicopter parents are typical upper middle class. Are you sure you don't want us to come with you, Dalton? We were invited. That's just for the orientation. It's a waste of your time and money. We just want to make sure you're okay with everyone at archering camp. Not everyone has your best interest at heart. Yeah, I know. Interior. TSA checkpoint. A half dozen airport security guards wrestle the four people from the Land Cruiser to the ground. This is visible from the coffee shop. Interior, airport coffee shop. Dalton and his parents watch as the four people are handcuffed by airport security as they lie face down. Are you sure you don't want us to come? You see what can happen. Dad indicates the four people on the verge of arrest. I don't see what you could have done to prevent that. Mom gets a bit teary-eyed. Dad grabs her hand. Just let us know if you need us. We'll be there ASAP. Interior. American Cruise Airlines TSA checkpoint following. Sarah watches as the security guards lead the four strangers away, the faces of the perpetrators still not visible. The older male argues with the guards. I'm with the NTSB. Check my ID, you fuckwit. It's in my left pocket. Jesus Christ. Did you pack this bag yourself? Sarah, startled, turns back to the TSA agent at the checkpoint. Yes, of course. Could anyone have tampered with it? I don't think so. I never let it out of my sight, but I guess you never know. The TSA agent looked sharply at her. No. No one has tampered with it. The TSA agent waves her through. Interior, airport store, moments later. The book sells, the shop sells books, snacks, and other items. Sarah holds a bottle of water and she notices a small rack of diaries. One with a distinctive forest pattern on the cover catches her eye. She reaches for it. Interior, airport terminal, following. As Sarah exits the store, William walks past, nearly bumping into her. Dalton, a couple steps behind William, stops to allow Sarah to exit. Sarah acknowledges Dalton and steps in front of him. Interior, American Cruise Airlines, gate 22, a few minutes later. Sarah stands in line at the gate. Both William and Dalton are now in front of her. Insert, the monitor registers flight 839 to Atlanta, departs in 30 minutes. Back to scene, the short line moves forward. It's ominously quiet in the airport. Sarah POV. The American Cruise Airline airplane sits on the tarmac at the gate, the night sky clear overhead. Back to scene. Dalton scans his phone. The gate agent ushers him through to the boarding ramp. Sarah continues to stare at the parked airplane, unaware that she's next. Interior, airplane entrance, ramp, following. Sarah enters the airplane. Lindsay has a calming presence and a quiet sense of authority. Sarah notices the flight attendant's name on her badge as Lindsay checks her boarding pass. 
Uh, welcome aboard. It looks like you're in the exit row on the left. Have a great flight. Thank you. Interior, airplane, exit row, following. William sits in the window seat of Sarah's row. He types furiously into his computer, oblivious to Sarah as she struggles to heft her carry-on into the overhead bin. William glances up just as she stores it. Oh, sorry. I'm in my own world. Oh, I should have helped you with that. Sarah acknowledges his half-assed apology. There aren't many people on this flight. I mean, isn't it odd that we're seated in the same Not row? Really, uh, this is an exit row. We're the ones that the airline has deemed able-bodied, capable enough to, in the event of an impending tragedy. Uh, I wouldn't know what to do. Nor would I. But the flight crew will tell us, and will nod our heads and agree without bothering to listen to them. We will. Why would we do that? Because these are the best seats on this wretched plane, and we want to keep them. After the flight crew, we're next in charge. Oh, we are. Sarah opens her new diary, unsure what to make of William. Interior, airplane entrance, a few minutes later. Marcus, a tall, well-built African-American man in his late 40s, rushes to enter before the doors close. He's a talker. Luggage emergency, but I made it. Had to get my golf clubs checked at the last minute. They wouldn't let me bring him on board. Gabriela Gomez, a mid-20s Hispanic woman and unassuming, checks Marcus's boarding pass. Welcome aboard, Mr. Johnson. Oh, you can call me Marcus. Interior, airplane, exit row. Lindsay approaches William and Sarah. Are you guys both comfortable performing the duties of the exit row? Yes, so long as we can buy a drink or two. <laughs> I guess so. Have a few minutes before takeoff. What would you guys like? Two vodkas and a cup of ice and whatever my seat companion wants. Her name is... An awkward pause. Oh, Sarah. Nothing for me, thanks. Sarah is a nervous flyer. And I'm William. Bring me three vodkas and a white wine, and I'll talk Sarah into having a nip before we go. William hands Lindsay his credit card. Back in a minute. Why did you do that? Do what? Find me a drink. It'll help you. I promise. Sarah. Sarah reaches for her new diary. She hates that she finds William attractive. Interior, airplane aisle, a moment later. Marcus walks past them. Sarah POV. Under Marcus's jacket, he has a gun that isn't fastened within its holster. Back to scene. Lindsay approaches from the back alley of the, of the aircraft with their drinks. Sarah tries to interject her point about Marcus and his gun, but William overtalks her. Thank you, Lindsay. It's great to get good service on this empty flights. Uh, you're welcome. You can continue to enjoy them, but you'll need to raise your tray table. William opens a small white wine bottle and pours it into the plastic cup. He hands it to Sarah, who takes it a bit reluctantly. Then he cracks one of his vodka bottles as Lindsay heads to the back of the airplane. <laughs> now, why are you on this flight, Sarah? 
Well, William, I'm going to be a bridesmaid and I'm going to spend some time with my mother. Hmm. Why are you flying to Atlanta? I have a business meeting in the morning. I'm going to tell my boss that he can stick my job up his ass in person and that he's paying for the privilege. Cheers to the bride, huh? Why did you buy me a drink? Because I think it will help you relax and that will be good for both of us. Do you always do that? Do what? Undercut an act of generosity with an explanation of how it will benefit me. That's a very good question. Oh, but that is not an answer. You're right. I have the sense that nothing about this trip is gonna be ordinary. I thought it would be nice to have a companion. Sarah looks at William, still unsure. She sips her wine. The airplane jerks and begins to move backward. Here we go. Exterior, American Cruise Airline Gate, continuous. The airplane pushes away from the gate, the full moon prominent. In the distance, lightning flashes through the night sky despite the otherwise clear night. End of Act One. Act Two, interior, central Nevada desert, dig site B, late afternoon. Andrea, Clark, and Blake excavate the fossilized woman. The sun beats down. Shade is provided by As Claire and Blake work on the woman's skull, Andrea gently pushes her trowel into the soft earth and hits a hidden object. They all stop digging. Hey, I found something else. The three begin to ex begin excavating the new find. Interior, dig site B, an hour later. Andrea, Clark, and Blake uncover another fossilized skull. She wasn't alone. She had a male friend. How can you tell this is a male? By the thickness of the brow ridge, but I'm guessing a bit. What do you think happened? Well, we're buried together. Andrea sits back. I'd postulate that other people from the modern era interred them. That's crazy. It's impossible. As Claire bends over the new fossilized skull, Andrea notices a Berkeley tattoo in the back of her neck. Of course, but that's what I think happened based on the facts available at this time. Spooky. No shit. Yeah, but we should keep going. We need to dig out both sets of remains and see if there's anything or anyone else. The three return to digging. Exterior, edge of the camp, moments later. A silver Toyota Land Cruiser pulls into the camp, bouncing over the rough ground. Interior, Toyota Land Cruiser, continuous. Samir drives with Bruce riding shotgun. Insert, the climate control is set at cold. Back to scene. A cool air rushes over them. Bruce can see heat haze off the ground. He's not happy. Samir parks the Land Cruiser near the communal tent, close to the other vehicles which include an old beat-up Toyota pickup and a newer Ford Explorer. Oh, it's going to be like an oven when I open the door, isn't it? 
Samir turns off the engine and opens his door. Desert heat rushes in, attacking Bruce. I can you it. Oh, Jesus. Bruce pulls on his Washington Wizards baseball cap, covering his bald spot. He exits the vehicle and slams the door. Exterior, Toyota Land Cruiser, continuous. Samir grabs their bags from the trunk and closes it. You're going to lock that? Who'd steal it? Or any of our stuff? Bruce grabs his bags from the ground. Well, you gotta admit, boss, this one's a little different. Aye, in the way purgatory is different from hell. <laughs> Just the waiting room for something worse to come. Susan approaches with a welcoming demeanor. Hello, I'm Dr. Susan uh, Lavi. I'm and I'm in charge of this excavation. Bruce Ackland, and my young companion seems to think you've unearthed something unusual. Bruce flashes his NTSB badge at Susan. Susan extends her hand and Samir shakes it. I'm Samir Glaver, assistant crash investigator. Susan looks between them, unsure of Bruce. Aye, we're cordial with one another, but it's been a long trip and, uh, well, I'm not good with social niceties. Or people's. Especially in this heat. Susan forces a smile, unsure what to make of them. I'm also skeptical about this uh, obituary you're writing for this airplane or whatever you think you've found. But my young colleague already seems to believe facts that are implausible. Well, I don't believe facts. I accept <laughs> them. I don't blame either of you for this difference in opinion. It's incomprehensible from our perspective as well. You do know that no plane of this type you're describing has gone missing, ever. And planes rarely go missing. That's why the Malaysian Airlines flight received so much coverage in 2014. I'm afraid I'm not aware of that. I, I don't follow recent events as closely as those that happened some eons ago. We, we aren't accustomed to finding parts of airplanes near dinosaurs, regardless of whether or not the plane was reported missing. Oh, I hate this heat. No wonder all the dinosaurs died. They were too dumb to move somewhere cooler. The environment was different during the Cretaceous period. This area was lush with flora black back then. It was likely humid and teeming with life. Most of it now extinct. We also believe we're standing on right on top of a dormant volcano in fault line. Bruce looks down. Where's the airplane tail? Well, let's get to the main event. Andrea approaches the group. She wipes away sweat, not even trying to seem cordial. This is Andrea Alejandro, my second in command. You'll be interfacing with her quite a bit. They add little greetings. All about the tail section. Andrea has far more insight into that than I do. Well, we've established dig site C for the metal piece. It's nearly fully excavated. That is truly beyond our expertise. Exterior, dig site C, moments later. Bruce, Samira, Andrea, and Susan head toward dig site C. As they get close, Craig approaches, running a bit to catch up. The late afternoon heat slows into a shuffle. He's the asshole following us. That's Dr. Craig Iverson. He's what we politely call the checks and balances in academia. Ah, uh, a pain in your ass. Every investigation has one. Susan indicates the hole in the ground just as Craig catches up to them. 
would like to turn your attention to what we've unearthed. A hole has been dug around the now protruding tail section of an aircraft. Clearly, this shouldn't be here. It's stripped of all markings and aged from time in the ground. I sent the junior dig team on break so we can have some privacy while you get your first look. Aye, thanks. What people is not what I need around me. Bruce and Samir hunker down next to the tail section. They are unsure what to make of it. Bruce rubs his beard. I told you, boss. This one's a little different. Well, this appears to be a hunk of metal from a plane, but well, it can't have come from an aircraft that crashed. Why are you so sure? Well, because this is from a Skyliner Y120. It's very distinctive and relatively new. It built a survival almost anything and, well, none have crashed, at least none that I'm aware of. So, what's your best guess? Maybe somebody took a piece from an airplane crash test and buried it here as a hoax? I don't know. Be a piece of military equipment blown to smithereens or embedded itself so deeply that it appears to be from the era you're ex excavating? You guys can't accept the possibility that this plane from our era may have crashed in the distant past, can't we? Bruce looks at Andrea and stands. He notices Craig taking notes. But Hen, it's fairly simple from my perspective. There are no missing planes of this type. It's not possible for an airplane to fall out of the sky before it takes off. Even if it were a secret military flight, a department would have been informed about the crash. You're working within the, within the box of what you understand. Now, maybe, maybe the parameters of what you believe to be so definitive. Sorry. Such a isn't productive, Andrea. It comes from beyond the parameters of what you believe to be so definitive. Such a tone isn't productive, Andrea. We're, we're all seeking the truth. And this is not an airplane. It's a hunk of metal that's consistent with those found at the back end of a particular type of airplane. I don't think any of you understand what we're dealing with. Andrea leaves the dig area, heading back to camp. Bruce kneels next to the piece of metal and touches it. Sweat pours from him and he blinks against the heat. As he continues to make contact with the metal, his eyes go wobbly. Insert, Bruce sees the plane from above it's crash landed in a prehistoric looking landscape, yet it's intact. Bruce becomes unsteady and then he passes out. Samir rushes to his boss's side. He pours tepid water on Bruce's face and the older man slowly comes around. How are you, boss? Dehydrated. You're supposed to put fluids in me, not on me. Samir hands Bruce the bottle. Bruce grasps it and takes in a large vessel. So, uh, do you think I was right? You really think that's what's important? That this trip isn't a complete waste of time? That you made the proper call in dragging me to this godforsaken place? He's fine. Samir helps Bruce, who is still a little unsteady, to his feet. Bruce notices Craig typing into his phone. Let's head back. Uh, we've put you up in an individual tent for each of you. You can unpack and relax before dinner. Great. I'd like to get away from here. 
Bruce, Samir, and Susan leave dig site C. Craig, who's never fully joined the group or introduced himself, heads in the opposite direction toward a rise in the distance. Interior, communal kitchen tent, after dinner, evening. The tent is large and open on three sides. Along the closed side is the kitchen area with serving tables and an ice bucket of beverages. In the middle of the shelter are a couple rows of long tables with chairs running along each side. Samir and Bruce sit at one table. Susan brings over three cold beverages. In front of them are their used plates. The sun begins to lower and a young intern lowers that side of the tent to shield them from the blinding light. Are you feeling better, Bruce? That's a relative question, but yeah, better than I was. It will cool down after the sun lowers behind the rise. Can you tell us what you think about what you saw? Maybe tomorrow. Now, I want to be alone. He's the Greta Garbo of airplane crash investigations. Susan snickers a little. I do not know what the fuck that means, which is why I need to get away from you people, at least for the rest of the evening. Sure, boss. Samir and Susan watch Bruce leave. Andre approaches from the other side, but she doesn't sit. All right. I have confirmation that the excavator will arrive tomorrow. Because of the human remains, they're, they're going to send another full team. In the meantime, Claire and Blake should have the man and the woman fully excavated before they Thanks, Andrea. The excavator will help us widen the dig site. By the way, I haven't mentioned the tail section in my report. Please mention that to Bruce. Why didn't you? It's not important to our paleontology research. And I didn't want to say that to either you or Bruce while Craig was present, just in case. Well, I won't discuss that in front of Craig, either. I mean, it's pretty clear Bruce already hates him. He won't say anything in front of anyone he considers an enemy. Yeah, but Bruce seems to hate almost everyone. I know it seems that way, but I think he likes Susan. It takes a while to learn how to read him. With Bruce, it's all about respect, both ways. I guess I should feel honored. Interior, Bruce's tent, sunset. Bruce enters his tent, sweating and out of breath. He sits on his camp bed, which groans under his weight. He removes his wizard cap. Scratching at his beard, he lays back. He grabs a bottle of water and twists off the top. I fucking hate this place. It'll be the end of me. Bruce begins to sweat heavily, and he begins to heave for breath. Instead of hallucination, Bruce lies on the floor of an aircraft. He looks toward his feet to see blood covering his body. Back to scene. Bruce passes out in his tent, dropping his water bottle. Exterior, campfire, night. Large rocks have been placed around the fire as makeshift chairs. On one side of the fire pit, Craig talks to Blake while Claire slow dances by herself to an 80s power ballad. On the other side, Andrea sits alone, setting up a drone. Samir enters the communal area holding a couple unopened cans of beer. He opens one and takes a sip, trying to decide where to sit. Finally, he approaches Andrea. Is the seat taken? No, help yourself. Samir sits on the same large flat rock that Andrea's already seated on. He takes another swig of beer. Do you want a beer? 
I can't. I've been recovering. Samir watches her work on the drone. What's that for? It can help see below the ground. It helps us figure out where the most efficient places are to go. Um, my sister would, would like you. Andrea puts the drone to one side. She slides to the ground, leaning back against the rock. Samir copies her. She's gay, but I'm not. That's funny. Everyone thinks I am, but no one thinks she is. Andrea looks at him and takes a beat before she replies. I don't like your older friend very much. Maybe I might like you. Samir nods to the drone. How does it work? Well, this uses ground penetrating radar. I'm gonna use it tomorrow. I'll pass over a couple of areas and see what it reveals. Samir finishes his beer. Dance music begins to play. Claire dances provocatively. Blake and Craig take notice. Samir cheers Claire's performance with a second beer. Hey, she's putting on quite a show. Ah, another night in the wilderness with the book of water. Do you want to dance? No. I should probably get to bed. And you should go check on your boss. We have a long day tomorrow. Samir watches Claire dance as Blake gets up and joins her. He hands her a bottle of booze and each takes a swig. Andrea picks up her drone, heading towards her tent. Have a good night. Dig site B, early morning. Below the easy up covering, Claire and Blake carefully remove fossilized bones from a female skeleton. They seem impervious to their previous night's drinking. Andrea focuses solely on the male skeleton. She, brush, she brushes away dirt just below the knee joint and she gasps. Insert, a shot of a fossilized top bit of the tibia with what looks like gashes in it. What the? Back to scene. Blake and Claire turn to look at what Andrea has unearthed. Andrea traces her finger along the bones of the lower legs, feeling the gouges. What is it? Andrea looks between Claire and Blake and then back to the fossil. Something took this guy's legs. End of act two. Act three, exterior, Portland airport, night. The large commercial airplane, an American cruise airline Skyliner Y120, sits ready on the runway. Overhead, the sky is clear and the plane is illuminated by the large full moon. Interior, Skyliner Y120, cockpit. Lindsay enters the cockpit to find Captain David Campbell, British, tall, early 50s, ex-Royal Air Force, sitting in the pilot seat, checking the airplane settings just before they get clearance to taxi. Next to him is Stephen Stern, the co-pilot, mid-30s, tall, pale, and thin with a receding hairline. He's flustered, hurriedly fastening his belts and putting on his headset. Gentlemen, everything is ready back there. We're uh, good to go here too. Just waiting for clearance. Should be a peaceful flight tonight. There are very few passengers, and I'm training Gabriela Gomez. She seems to have a lot of potential. It'll be a quiet flight. The passengers will be asleep in no time. Ah, uh, the greatness of red eyes. Oh, and we do have an air marshal, Marcus. Hmm. Yeah, I've flown with him several times. He's good. Look after him for me. 
Lindsay turns to leave. Oh, when uh, perhaps we can get a drink, you know, when we land. A drink in the morning? We can have coffee. I mean, that's a drink, isn't it? Let me think about it. Lindsay exits the cockpit. Captain Campbell and Stephen turn their attention back to the checks. You old dog. Hey, just being friendly, that's all. ACA 839 Heavy, you have clearance to runway Alpha. You ready? Stephen gives him a thumbs up. Captain Campbell pushes the throttles forward and the airplane begins to head to the line of departing flights. Interior, exit row economy seats, following. Sarah feels the airplane move forward. She grasps her nearly full cup of wine tightly. She looks terrified. Oh dear. What should I do with my wine? You should drink it quickly or it'll spill when we take off. All of it? No, just some of it. Our bodies are designed to move naturally with unusual forces. That'll help keep you from spilling it. Sarah gulps much of her wine. Did you see that guy who walked past us? I think he had a gun. Which one? You know, the, the big one. Which big one? He was bald, kind of white. The, the one who was black. He was black? I mean, he still is, but he had a gun. So you're telling me this now as the plane is about to take off? Just then the airplane begins to accelerate and the tires rumble. Now it's just the sound of the engines. Sarah holds on desperately to what's left of her wine. Oh, I should have mentioned it earlier, or not at all. The airplane begins to rise. Insert Sarah POV. The lights of Portland fall away. William reaches out his hand. I don't bite, I promise. Sarah thinks for a moment and then takes his hand. Thanks. I think. I'm just giving you a hard time. I think he's our air marshal. As Sarah thinks, the engines throttle back a little. Why did you do that? Do what? Get me drunk and then confuse me. Because I can tell how unsettled you are about flying. And look, we're up. Ladies and uh, gentlemen, this is your pilot, Captain David Campbell speaking. We'll be cruising at around 35,000 feet in a few minutes. We're scheduled for on-time arrival, sit back and relax. A wonderful crew will be with you shortly. Haha, <laughs> see? The pilot is British. Everything will be fine. Sarah relaxes. William joins her watching the city lights disappear from view as the airplane travels through the clear night air. Now all they see are stars and the full moon. Interior, Skyliner Y120 cockpit, continuous. Captain Campbell throttles back and engages the autopilot. He unfastens his seatbelt 
and lets go of the controls. Steven does the same. We're up. Nothing to do now but babysitter. The pilot looks over to Stephen with a disapproving look. How are you late? You could have caused us a delay. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I was held up on my phone. The Pilots Association had some questions for me about some recent irregularities. And what, pray tell, do you think they were driving at? I'm not at liberty to discuss this, but you'll be among the first to learn after they conclude their review. Captain Campbell turns back to face the control panel. It's not just about you. I'm sorry if I made you feel uncomfortable. Sometimes I'm awkward that way. Understood. Exterior, Skyliner Y120. The airplane flies steadily until it's flying over a cloud base. It's surrounded by far distant stars and the full moon that illuminates the glossy fuselage and livery, as well as clouds below. The navigation lights flash against the clouds. Interior, Skyliner Y120. Exit row, following. Sarah still holds William's hand. She leans away from the window and settles into her seat. On the screen in front of her, the map tracks the flight. Oh, flying frightens me. I can barely breathe. Maybe it's because you're squeezing everything so hard. William nods to his squashed hand. Oh, I'm so sorry. Sarah lets go of William's hand. We're halfway there. Virtually all mechanical airplane disasters occur during takeoff or landing. And I've researched that. I mean, but that doesn't prevent like, terrorism mid-flight. I can assure you this flight has no terrorists on board. Unless our air marshal is our aggrieved with his job as I am with mine. Oh, so that's why you're going personally, rather than emailing your resignation. I need to tell my boss face to face. A simple resignation letter wouldn't provide the catharsis I need. Mm. After working my ass off for eight years with countless promises, they gave me promotion eh, to some young douche and they asked me to train them. <laughs> um, that's how things are these days. People used to have jobs for life, but it, it seems we're all as disposable as our phones. Crap. What? William glances at the smartwatch. What? I promised to tip my Lyft driver. Forgot. With all the commotion, dang it. In the airport. You saw that too? The Land Cruiser hit my driver's car just after I got out, luckily. I wonder who they were. At least they didn't stop our flight. I'll tip my driver when we land. He deserves it, especially after they crashed into his car. And the world is full of crazy people. Humans are like uh, the bag of apples. <laughs> What do you mean? Once one goes bad, the rest rot much more quickly. William finishes his drink. You don't get invited to a lot of parties, do you? 
Not anymore. William opens his laptop and Sarah pulls a blanket over her. Interior, Skyliner Y120 cockpit, later. Lindsay enters the flight deck with a coffee and hands it to Captain Campbell, who nods and takes it. Stephen looks at the single coffee and then to Lindsay. I guess I'll go get my own. Sorry, I didn't think you'd want one. Stephen sighs. He squeezes past Lindsay, exiting the cockpit. So, how are we looking, Captain? Everything seems on course. From I'm getting a few odd readings. Nothing to worry about, I'm sure. He sure is a piece of work, isn't he? You have no idea. Oh, I think I do. He's no friend of the flight attendants either. He's been instrumental in the abrupt termination of several of my friends. I don't like to spread gossip, so I guess it's good that you already know what I'm thinking. A light flashes on the instrument panel, followed by a warning sound. Is that anything to worry about? Not yet, but I need to take a look. I should probably get back and check in with Gabriella. Oh, and the answer to your question is, yeah, I'd love to have coffee with you when we land. Captain Campbell studies the instrument panel, a bit concerned. He responds without looking up. Coffee it is then, in the morning. Interior, exit row, economy seats, a half hour later. Lindsay and Gabriella pull the drink cart up to William and Sarah's seat. Sarah is asleep. Would you like another drink? Are you trying to get me drunk? Uh, no, sir. I'm asking if you want to get yourself drunk. Badly, but I have an early morning business meeting. I can't sleep on a plane, so maybe just a coffee. Uh, and your companion? Hmm, well, she could have used something more than white wine earlier, but she's fine now. Sarah rustles in her seat as Gabriella hands William a cup of coffee. Thank you. The plane shakes and the seatbelt signs light up. Lindsay and Gabriella make their way back to the galley. William holds onto his laptop and coffee. Folks, we're going to experience a little bit of turbulence for the next several minutes. It's, it's nothing, nothing to be concerned about, but I'm going to climb to a higher altitude for a smoother ride for you all. Sarah wakes and looks at William. What's happening? The sound from the engines grow audible. We're climbing. Ah, nothing to worry about. Sarah closes her eyes. Interior, Skyliner Y120, back galley, following. Lindsay and Gabriella strap into their seats. The plane begins to shake more violently. The engines roar more loudly. Gabriella POV. She notices the drink cart shifting in its space. She forgot to secure it. Back to scene. Gabriella unfastens her seatbelt. Hey, maybe just wait a bit. I'm sorry, I forgot to lock it in place. It's not a big deal. I've done it myself. Another bout of turbulence hits the plane. It's violent enough to unseat the cart. Gabriella stands. 
It's not safe. Get back in your seat. Another big hit lifts Gabriella off of the floor. She slams into the ceiling as the drink cart moves out of his housing. Gabriella drops, landing on the dislodged cart back first. She screams in pain. Then she tumbles onto the floor, banging her head so violently that she's knocked unconscious. Lindsay releases her seatbelt and grabs the drink cart before it hits Gabriella. She locks it into place. Lindsay kneels beside Gabriella as the plane continues to shake, grasping hold of the seat fixture with one hand to steady herself. She checks Gabriella with her other hand. Exterior, Skyliner Y120, following. The airplane lunges, the engines scream. An enormous, intense white light appears on the horizon. The light rushes toward the pitching airplane at an impossible speed, enveloping it. End of Act 3. Act 4. Exterior. Central Nevada Desert. Dawn. Awake before the others, Andrea flies the GPR drone. She sweeps back and forth. The control pad chimes. She pushes a button and the drone hovers. Andrea looks down at the imaging screen. Insert. An image of part of an aircraft with a severed wing begins to take shape. Back to scene. Andrea looks shaken. In the distance, a large semi-truck rumbles into camp with an excavator on its trailer. Andrea's walkie-talkie crackles. Andrea, can you come down to the parking lot? Uh, the excavator is here. On my way. Interior, Bruce's tent, early morning. Bruce lies on his bunk. The early sun bleeds through the material. He's still dressed in yesterday's clothes. The rumbling awakens him. Oh, what now? Bruce hears voices and commotion outside his tent. He sits, scratching at his ball spot. He reaches for his wizard's cap. Exterior, Bruce's tent, continuous. Bruce exits his tent, pulling on his wizard's cap. A few hundred feet away, the large truck with an excavator on its trailer parks near the other vehicles. Behind it, a cloud of hot, dry, dry dirt settles. Exterior, dig site, parking lot. Samir and Susan approach the driver, Frank Bigelow, an old school trucker about 70 as he descends from the cab. Bruce heads toward them. Good morning to y'all. Uh, I'm delivering this excavator to who's in charge. That would be me. I'm Dr. Susan Levy. I'm the lead on the site. Frank looks at those in the group and then directly at Susan. Uh, I'm going to need your signature on these, ma'am. I'm Frank Bigelow. Frank hands Susan a thick batch of paperwork. And thank you, Frank. We're desperately in need of this excavator. Well, I drove through the night to get here, as per the request. When can you get started with the excavation? I only deliver equipment. Don't know how much, how much about how it works. I'm sorry to hear that. I thought the equipment would come with the crew we ordered. Well, you ordered a crew, but they don't arrive till day after tomorrow, according to my requisition. Well, government likely wants to make certain equipments in place before they uh, send personnel. I suppose that makes sense. Andrea approaches during this uncomfortable beat. I can't unload until I get your signature, ma'am. Susan blushes, then signs the paperwork. She hands it back to Frank. Bruce turns to Samir as Frank heads to the trailer. Well, that's a fuckload of nonsense, since none of us know how to use an excavator. In the background, Frank begins to unload the excavator. 
Oh, government planning, boss. You know how it is. So what the fuck do we do with this until the team arrives? I've run excavators. I spent several months at a dig site in southern Siberia. Maybe it's a good thing we have the equipment here without the crew. And that we have someone competent to use it. How so? It'll give us a couple of days head start before the government hacks arrive. Once they get here, neither of us will be in charge. Well, whoever digs out the rest of this tale needs to make sure it isn't damaged. Of course. But first, I'm directing Andrea to excavate the site near the human remains. I think that's the site most likely to yield the evidence we need sooner. Why there? Digging near a burial site often yields surprising results. You should rather delicately begin exploring the terrain near the dead man and woman. Yeah, that seems right to me. Exterior, dig site, parking lot, a few minutes later. Frank and his truck and trailer leave in a cloud of dust. Andrea, in the driver's seat of the excavator, starts the engine. It roars to life, belching black diesel smoke. Then, with its metal track screeching, it begins to turn. As it does, the rear tow hook hits the rear door of the Land Cruiser, leaving a long yellow scratch. Without noticing, Andrea sets off towards dig site B. Well, so much for getting the rental deposit back. Should I call Andrea back? <laughs> it's not renting under my name, <laughs> ask Samir. <laughs> Samir makes eye contact with Susan. Bruce catches him and shakes his head. It's true, it's fine. I'll be in my tent. Let me know when there's something useful for me to do. Exterior. Arise. Later. Craig stands on the rise, about 500 yards from the camp. He watches Andrea approach dig site B with the excavator. Craig turns his attention back to his phone. Insert Craig's phone, head honcho McMurtry. Craig's index finger presses the text button. Back to scene. From Craig's POV, we see him watch as Andrea and the excavator park at the first place where she plans to drill, just about where she was flying the drone earlier. Craig's text messages type out in real time, appearing like subtitles on a foreign film at the bottom of the screen as Andrea continues to work in the distance. The equipment is here. Is it excavating before government arrives? Can you delay? Not without further suspicion. In the background, Andrea works the excavator, beginning her first plunge. What does that mean regarding airplane tail and dinos? Group think among paleontologists and uh, crash investigators. Panel will need clarification. Report more when you can. Will do. Is Miss Alejandro of special interest? Not sure. We'll advise later. Phone dying. Insert Craig's phone, 73% charged. Back to scene. Craig powers off his phone, stuffing it into a pocket of his cargo shorts. Craig looks around, making sure no one has seen him. Andrea and the excavator continue to work in the distance. Interior, Susan's tent, night. Susan lies on her bed, holding a photograph of her husband, James Lavey, a, a handsome man, 20 years older than Susan. James, my dear, what would you make of this? 
be fascinated, I'm sure. As Susan places the photograph on her trunk, Andrea calls from outside her tent. Dr. Levy, are you awake? I am. Susan unzips the opening to her tent. I need to tell you something. Do you think anybody can hear us? Let's go for a walk. Exterior, outside the campsite, night, moments later. Susan and Andrea walk slowly around the edge of the camp. The sky is crystal clear and Susan pulls her wrap close. The deep black background and contrasts with the camp's lights. The stars are brilliant and visible. Back in the Cretaceous period, these stars would have appeared much larger and brighter. And, and in different alignments. Yes, that too. Andrea stops. She's anxious, as though she's about to confess something to her mother. What is it? You're my only shield in academia. And I'm worried that I'll disappoint you if I tell you what I found and what I think. Perhaps you don't know me as well as you think you do. Andrea digs deep. I believe the contemporary man was, was partially eaten and that he and the woman were buried during the Cretaceous period. Susan chills against the cold desert air. Why do you think he was eaten? The marks on the remains of his tibia are deep and, and enormous. I've traced other indentations similar to these. They look exactly like the teeth marks of an adult Tyrannosaurus Rex. So far, your hypothesis isn't without consideration. Yeah, my question is, how did a modern human encounter a T-Rex? Susan looks up to the night sky. There are more mysteries than stars in the sky. This is just another one. And like so many before, may never fully be answered. When did you come to this conclusion? Yesterday, but I was too scared to tell you. Why were you scared to tell me? Sharing, sharing my thoughts hasn't exactly worked out very well for me in the past. I think I just needed to think about it. And this is merely a hypothesis. No one can rule it out. Yeah, that's not all. I didn't think it was. Take your time. Andrea takes a deep breath and exhales slowly. Please don't hate me. I'm worried about my academic career and your perception. How long have we known each other? And in that time, have I ever given you a thought, ever given you a reason to feel scared to share your thoughts? No, no, you haven't. These are pretty extraordinary circumstances. Even so, you can tell me. And you should tell me. Andrea shows Susan her iPad. Insert the image from the drone. 
Now it reveals the full image of a buried airplane. I found the plane this morning with the excavator. I'm working on that. I was working on that instead of what you asked me to look for. Susan takes a beat. She's startled. I knew you'd be upset that I didn't tell you sooner. No, it, it's, it's not that. You did the right thing. You did the correct thing. It's important you discuss this without the risk of it being overheard. Tell me what you're thinking. I promise you that it will just be between the two of us for now. So here are the facts. A plane and two humans are interred in the, in the Cretaceous Earth. One appears to have been half-eaten by an animal that died out 65 million years ago. And the large airplane that never took off, or at the very least was never reported missing, is buried nearby. I know you have an idea. You're much better at most of, than most of us at constructing a hypothesis. That's why I champion you. It's, it's what I've been driving at in my dissertation. I think the time is different than we believe. We have no idea what's possible over the continuum or even how that continuum works. We rely on anecdotal experiences of time moving forward, of time always being linear. What do you think happened? Well, based on the facts, I surmise that these people left our era and crash in a period period where they likely survived over some time. What makes you believe they survived uh, at least for some time? Well, it's, it's because how the male and the female were buried together. And some other survivor had to do it. Andrea breathes heavily. She's now unburdened. Susan takes a beat. The weight of possible consequences is passed to her. Why don't you head back to the campsite and try to rest? We'll talk more about this tomorrow. Andrea leaves Susan alone and the desert, si the desert silence embraces Susan. She watches Andrea head back to camp, backlit by the remaining lights on in the camp. A gust of cold breeze passes through Susan and she pulls her wrap more tightly. She looks back to the sky. Inset, a blanket of billions of stars overhead shooting star flashes across. Where did you come from? Exterior, Skyliner 120, Y120, night. The plane screams as it fights against impossible turbulence. The pulses of bright lights now fully envelop the plane. Sparks and flames skip and bounce along the fuselage, searing off the, plate, the paint. Interior, Skyliner Y120, cockpit, Captain Campbell and Stephen fight the controls. Through the cockpit window, sparks and flames bounce off the nose. Another pulse of bright light hits them, and then nothing. The sky is clear. Captain Campbell throttles back and looks to Stephen. All goes quiet in the cockpit. Interior, Skyliner Y120, passenger cabin. Passengers are flustered and scared. Bags have fallen from the overhead locker. Oxygen masks hang, hang loose. Lights flicker off and then come on along with the small screens. Montage. Dalton curls into his seat, terrified. Marcus sits praying. 
other passengers try to calm themselves. Interior, Skyliner Y120, back galley. Lindsay crouches next to Gabriella. The younger flight attendant is gravely injured. Lindsay comforts her and then heads to the front of the plane. Interior, Skyliner Y120, aisle. Lindsay passes Dalton. She notices how upset he is and she stops next to his seat. It's okay. It seems we're out of it now. What, what happened? What could make the plane shake like that? Severe turbulence, but it's never brought down an aircraft. What about the lights? I don't know. Dalton forces a nod, even though he remains skeptical. Interior, Skyliner Y120, cockpit. Captain Campbell looks out the window. What the hell was that? I have no idea. How are we looking? Okay. Somehow. Lindsay enters, enters the cockpit. Passengers are really frightened. Are, are we good? Yes. Yes, by, by some miracle, yes. Gabriella is badly injured. She needs medical attention. We need to land as soon as possible, wherever we can. Yeah, we're working on it. Do what you can for Gabriella in the meantime. Lindsay eg exits the cockpit. Captain Campbell turns back to the instruments. One by one, the satellite-based guidance systems on the control panel fail. Insert. The sat-nav systems all read, no satellites found. How is that possible? Interior, Skyliner Y120, passenger cabin. Sarah watches as Lindsay rushes to the back of the plane. Sarah turns to William, who stares out the window. That was terrifying. Uh, I think it was turbulence. And that bright light? Not sure. Uh, maybe some electromagnetic discharge. Anyway, that's not what worries me. If that isn't something to worry about, then what is? William points out of the window. See anything strange? Not really. When we left Portland, the moon was full. Sarah looks over William's shoulder. Insert, the screens in front of them go blank, but Sarah and William don't notice as they look out the window. The words, no satellites found, scroll across the screens in a loop. Exterior, Skyliner Y120. The plane's exterior navigation lights blink against the night. Each flash reveals that the glossy paint and livery have been stripped to bare metal. The Skyliner Y120 flies naked through the night, a tin tube with wings. The crescent moon hovers at the horizon. The stars beam beautiful and bright, terrifyingly enormous. End of pilot episode.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Read Podcast. Find out how to submit a script, join the cast, or register to attend the next live Zoom Table Read at northernunicornfilmsltd.com.